0: Susan Page, why did you call your book The Matriarch?
1: Because she was a matriarch. Who was she? She was uh, a funny, sharp, smart, caustic woman, Uh, one of just two women to ever be, both the wife and the mother of presidents, the only uh, person ever to live to see both her uh, spouse and her child uh, move into the White House. She was, uh, I think someone Americans loved but didn't really understand. Uh, And I thought that deserved a story.
0: Tell us how you decided to do the book and why you think Mrs. Bush agreed to talk to you and when.
1: So I wanted to do a book about something I'd covered uh, after all these years in Washington. And uh, I thought about some different books that involved the Bush administrations because I'd covered both of those. And it turned out that Barbara Bush had written two best-selling memoirs, but there wasn't really a muscular biography of her that had been done. Uh, And so that seemed like a great topic to me. Um, I pitched the book. I got an agent, Javelin DC. We pitched the book to publishers. A publisher, 12 Books, signed a contract, but I had not contacted her uh, to see if she would cooperate, Um, which may have been uh, stupid, but here was my reasoning that... Uh, If she said no, I wouldn't know whether to go ahead. And if she said yes, she might think she had some say over what I wrote. Uh, So I just took a leap of faith, and so did my publisher. I wrote her um, a letter. I sent her an email uh, and asked if she would allow me to interview her once. And after about a week, she said yes. So in October 2017, I interviewed her the first time, and then a second time, and then a third time, and, and so it went.
0: Now, she's been dead how long?
1: She died uh, almost exactly a year ago on April 17th of 2018.
0: And so where did you interview her? You said five interviews. You were scheduled for a sixth. What were the circumstances around that one?
1: So I'd had five interviews. At the end of each interview, we had no great arrangement. At the end of each interview, I would say, can I interview you again? And each time she would say yes. Uh, So I'd had five interviews, and we had scheduled a sixth. I, in fact, had gone to Texas For the sixth interview, uh, I was down in College Station doing some archival research before the interview, and uh, she fell the night before the interview was scheduled. And uh, she never recovered, Uh, and so the fifth interview was the last interview that I did. But she did something um, remarkable, I thought, in that fifth interview, which is, uh, at the very beginning she said, you will never see my diaries. Um, her diaries uh, are kept at the bush library but they are not available for public view until 35 years after her death and I understood that and I thought that she was unlikely to let me see her diaries and at the end of the fifth interview she said and you can see my diaries and that was an incredible gift
0: how big are the diaries (laughs)
1: She started keeping these diaries and papers in 1948, 1948. So as a young bride uh, with a child, George W. Bush, uh, she began to keep these intermittently. She didn't always invariably keep a diary, um, but she came back to it over and over again. Uh, And she made the last entry in her diary 12 days before she died.
0: How big a difference did your access to the diaries make for your book?
1: They made an enormous amount of difference because it was a contemporaneous account of what she was thinking about all these things that happened in her remarkable and long life.
0: What was your biggest find?
1: Uh, uh, Well, I'm not sure this is the biggest, but this was one of the funniest, uh, which is, uh, you know, she had a difficult relationship with Nancy Reagan. And, uh, and she really bit her tongue uh, when Nancy Reagan did various things that she found um, difficult. Uh, and it turned out that Nancy Reagan was worried about what Barbara Bush was going to write in Barbara Bush's memoir. Uh, and so, but Nancy Reagan didn't feel free to call Barbara Bush directly to ask her. So Nancy Reagan went to Marlon Fitzwater, who you know, who had been an, an aide to both President Reagan and President Bush, who called uh, Jean Becker, who was an aide to Mrs. Bush, and asked, and Jean Becker went and asked Barbara Bush what she was going to say about Nancy Reagan in her, in her memoir, and <laughs> Barbara Bush then wrote a mock chapter that recounted every offense she had that she felt Nancy Reagan had ever made on her, and she gave that to Jean Becker saying, well, this is what I'm going to say. And it was just one, then she did this, then she did this. And at the end of that, she said, she wrote, and Jean, this is just a joke. <laughs> so it was a mock chapter for a memoir that kind of unloaded on Nancy Reagan. And in her memoir, she did not unload on Nancy Reagan. She did not uh, really say a critical thing about Nancy Reagan in her memoir.
0: There's, I have some video that you'll recognize. The uh, Prince Philip of uh, Great Britain came to the White House during the Reagan years and Vice President Bush and Mrs. Bush were or were not there and we'll talk about that when we look at this video. I was think one of the most marvelous things about um, coming to the United States is that you have this extraordinary gift for making people feel welcome. And apart from the friendliness with which you greet everybody, it really does warm the heart to to come here and be made to feel welcome. What's the significance of that, Amy?
1: Well, it was the hottest ticket in the Reagan White House, that dinner. It was a really glittering dinner. Uh, It was amazing. And John Travolta dancing with Princess Di is a picture that, Everyone who was alive at the time, I'm sure, remembers. Um, And the Bushes were pointedly not invited. Now, in doing research for the book, we found the original guest list uh, that was sent to Mrs. Reagan with the guests. And the first name on the list was President and Mrs. Reagan, and the second name on the list was Vice President and Mrs. Bush. And Barbara Bush crossed their names out. We found subsequent guest lists where... Their names were repeatedly proposed, let's consider inviting the vice president and his wife. Uh, Nancy Reagan did not invite them. She wasn't required by protocol to invite them. It wasn't a state dinner. The Bushes were always included in state dinners because protocol required them to be included. Uh, But they were not invited to that uh, dinner, and that was quite deliberate.
0: In your book, Nancy Reagan, I'm reading, never disparaged Barbara Bush in front of the East Wing staff. Mm -hmm. Tate said, meaning Sheila Tate, who worked for Ronald Reagan, the one thing I've got to say about Nancy Reagan, and I don't care what you think, she never gossiped to her staff, never, never. Do you believe that?
1: Um, I I believe Sheila Tate. I believe Sheila Tate when she says that she didn't gossip to her. But Nancy Reagan gossiped to many people, uh, uh, not to her staff, perhaps, but But to others, and one thing Nancy Reagan, I think, did not understand was the network that Barbara Bush had built over decades in Washington. So Barbara Bush uh, would recount that in her diaries that Nancy Reagan would have said this about her at some dinner in New York, which immediately would have gotten back to Barbara Bush by some friend who happened to be included on the guest list. So, yes, I think Nancy Reagan uh, did gossip and, and didn't like Barbara Bush. Uh, very much, and that was something Barbara Bush understood. But I, but in response to your question, yes, I believe Sheila Tate when she says that.
0: Here's a quote you, you just explained. as Friend after friend would report small dinners in New York. <clears throat> she would say, and this is Nancy Reagan, would say, I don't know why the press lets Barbara Bush get away with designer clothes. Barbara wrote in her diary, adding, I wonder if it ever occurred to her that George Bush paid for my clothes. What's that about?
1: So, of course, Nancy Reagan famously got into some PR trouble uh, in two ways. One is by seeming very concerned about how she dressed. She was. She she dressed beautifully. And the second was by accepting dresses without paying for them from designers. And that became a controversy. Now, one of the things that was interesting in her diaries was that Barbara Bush really liked designer clothes, too. She she uh, She liked to dress well. She wasn't really known for dressing well in the same way that Nancy Reagan was, and she wasn't a clothes horse in the same way. But she got a lot of pleasure out of clothes, but she always paid for them. And that was the difference. But one thing that I think defenders of Nancy Reagan would say is the press never gave Nancy Reagan the benefit of the doubt. The press tended to give Barbara Bush the benefit of the doubt. And that made a big difference in their press coverage. And I think that's a fair observation.
0: You tell a story from Frank Ferenkopf about something called First Monday. (laughs) What was that? And what did Frank Ferenkoff tell you?
1: So first Monday was uh, a magazine that the Republican National Committee put out, which had not that great a circulation, and, and who would really care, except that the circulation was entirely Republican activists, the kind of people who might endorse you in a primary or might go out and, and uh, walk uh, the neighborhood for you when you're running for office. Uh, so they're exactly the kind of people that politicians wanted to cultivate. Um, and Frank Farenkoff, uh was often invited to dinners that the Bushes would give at the vice president's residence. This is when Bush was vice president, but hoping to become president. And usually he would be uh, at the head of a table himself, small tables uh, of people. And he said he arrived for one dinner, and he was seated next to Barbara Bush, which he was pretty sure was not a good thing. And as the dinner was winding down, she invited him to have a private conversation with her. And she complained that George Bush had not been featured in First Monday for months and months, not been mentioned. And Frank Ferenkoff said he was sure she was wrong but and that he would check on it and get back to her the next morning. So he's driving home and he calls Bill Greener, who was one of his aides at the RNC, and said, you've got to get all the issues of First Monday. We've got to look at them and find George Bush. And when they got them, of course, Barbara Bush was quite right that they had not been featuring GEORGE BUSH IN FIRST MONDAY, AND BELIEVE ME, THEY STARTED TO INCLUDE HIM IN EVERYONE.
0: I WANT TO SHOW YOU SIX SECONDS OF VIDEO FROM A PROGRAM BACK, uh, LET ME CHECK TO MAKE SURE, IT'S 1983, BARBARA BUSH CAME TO OUR STUDIOS, IT'S THE ONLY TIME SHE DID THIS, AND IT WAS A CALL-IN SHOW, Um, I look SIGNIFICANTLY YOUNGER (laughs) AT THE TIME, BUT IT'S ONLY SIX SECONDS, AND I WANT YOUR REACTION TO WHAT SHE DOES WHEN I ASK HER THIS QUESTION. DO YOU HAVE A POSITION ON ERA? I came to talk about education. <laughs> Shut me down. I came to talk about education. You, know,
1: you look just the same.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't really see any difference.
1: So, uh, you know, she didn't she avoided she didn't want to create problems for her husband. Now, in fact, she had views on the NRA. She she endorsed uh she supported gun control. But the Republican Party was not agreeing with her and so she didn't want to create problems with the uh, with uh, for on, on the NRA NRA was what you asked her about, right? Uh, or the ERA? No, the ERA Oh, I'm sorry okay. Let me start over again First of all, <laughs> you look just the same <laughs> Yeah, thank yeah. you Yeah, right, that not one down. So she supported the ERA And in fact, when George Bush first ran for president He supported the ERA too But the party had moved in a different direction And she didn't want to create problems for her husband So she just refused to discuss it
0: What did she do on abortion?
1: Abortion. This was so interesting. Uh, she supported abortion rights, um, but that party was definitely moving in a different direction on that. And when George Bush was chosen uh, as Ronald Reagan's running mate, he made a commitment to support the Republican platform, which opposed abortion. And so he did. He came. He changed his view on abortion. She never did, but she stopped talking about it. And in her diaries, I found something quite extraordinary which is, in her diaries in early 1980, there were four pages of loose paper tucked in, folded over, tucked in. I unfolded them. It was essentially a letter she wrote to herself trying to figure out what did she think about abortion, that she knew she was going to be asked about it in that 1980 presidential campaign, and she wanted to know what she thought. And it's a very thoughtful, poignant uh, letter. It's, It's... And she concludes that she supports abortion rights, and she concludes that for an interesting reason, and it's because of her experience with the death of her daughter, Robin. Robin died in 1953 of leukemia. She died when her mother was 29 years old. Uh, And Barbara Bush wrote that she could sense when Robin was born when her soul entered her body. And she said she knew when robin died that she felt her soul leaving her body and to her that meant that abortion was not murder because your soul had not entered your body until you were born and that therefore it was an issue that should be left to a mother and a father and their doctor and not something that's up to the government
0: let's go back to what you said after five interviews she let you see the diaries Mm -hmm. had anybody ever seen them besides her
1: john meacham had, uh, who wrote the wonderful biography of George H.W. Bush, Destiny and Power, had been allowed to see them.
0: Why do you think she wanted you to see them?
1: Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think she liked me. Um, I think she felt, after five interviews, that I was doing a serious piece of history here. Uh, and she knew I wanted to see them. Uh, and I think she also knew that she wasn't going to live very long. So, as I said, it was unexpected and extraordinary.
0: This is from your book on page 102. Overwhelmed by pain and loneliness, she contemplated suicide. What's the story behind that? And how has she, has she talked about that before?
1: There's a reference to her in, it, in her memoir, uh, but she hadn't dis- I don't, she hadn't discussed it, so far as I know, with anyone publicly before. It was in 1976, uh, George Bush had taken over the Central Intelligence Agency. She had been so involved in all the aspects of his previous jobs, uh, and now she wasn't because he was heading a spy agency. Um, they had moved back to Washington from China. Her, ki- She had a, a kind of an empty nest. Uh, Dora was uh, away at high school, the boys were in college or, or beyond. Um, and she fell into a really serious depression. And she told me that she would be driving and she would have this urge to direct her car into a tree or to go into, steer into the path of an oncoming car and that she would have to pull off the road until that impulse had passed.
0: How did she get over it? I mean, she, I guess it's called depression. And right. She had it for how long, do you think?
1: About six months. And at one point she told her doctor, and he didn't take it very seriously. Uh, They discussed that later. She never really sought uh, medical treatment for it. The only person she talked about it at the time was her husband. Um, She eventually felt better. She's not sure why she started to feel better. Uh, She went and volunteered at a Washington hospice. That made her feel better, too, taking care of somebody else.
0: On the page where you talk about the suicide, the next page has something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, although it has gotten some. Jennifer Fitzgerald. And how big a deal was that in her depression? And who was she?
1: Jennifer Fitzgerald was uh, an aide to um, George H.W. Bush. Uh, George Bush hired her when he went to China. She went to China Uh, with the Bushes arrived uh, a little after they had arrived in China and continued to be close to him, uh, worked closely with him until he became president. Um, There have long been rumors about a personal affair between President Bush and Jennifer Fitzgerald. I think it's important to note that President Bush and Barbara Bush and Jennifer Fitzgerald all deny that they had an affair. but it was hard to understand President Bush's decision to keep her so close to him, even after she became controversial publicly and also controversial par- privately within his staff. She was uh, she was someone other people in the staff often didn't get along with. Uh, some people left his staff because they couldn't get along with Jennifer Fitzgerald. So people, I think, need to make their own decisions about what the nature of their relationship was. But I can tell you this for sure. It was enormously painful for Barbara Bush to have to deal with these rumors because she adored George Bush and she would have to deal with it, especially in interviews during the 1992 campaign. And you can tell from her diaries how anguishing that was for her.
0: Is Jennifer Fitzgerald still alive? And if she is, did you talk to her?
1: Um, I believe she's still alive uh, and living in Florida. Um, I reached out to her. Uh, she didn't return my calls, and I didn't talk to her.
0: The Wellesley commencement mm-hmm. speech. What's the story behind that?
1: Such a such a wonderful speech. Such a great speech. How many commencement speeches since then have quoted Barbara Bush's Wellesley speech? Uh, it was in 1990, um, and she had agreed to give several college commencements, uh, including at Wellesley. And um, uh, then some of the students at Wellesley started a petition drive protesting her choice as their commencement speaker because she had been basically just a housewife, because all of her fame was due not to what she had done herself, but to what her husband had done. And uh, a fair number of the students at Wellesley signed this petition saying they wanted an additional commencement speaker, not that she'd be disinvited, but that someone who was more in line with uh, who they thought was worthwhile would speak at their commencement. And this became such a national controversy uh, between those who thought the students were making a fair point and those who took offense at Barbara Bush's behest at the way she was being treated. And, uh, And, you know, she was wounded by this. This is another thing we know from her diaries. It bothered her In public, she was breezy about it. But in her diaries, she was distressed that this was what they thought of her.
0: When did she find out that she was the second choice? (laughs)
1: Uh, You know, I don't know when she did, uh, because when the uh, head of the university, uh, the head of the college, contacted her with a very fulsome letter about how the students would love to have her be their commencement speaker— Uh, she did not reveal that she was not their first choice and that their their first choice had had to to, to back out. Uh, But in any case, she gave a speech that is a wonderful speech and a wonderful statement of her values and was very well received. All right, we've
0: got some clips from there. And the woman that was invited first that couldn't get there was Alice Walker. And she refers to it. Let's look at a clip of that speech at Wellesley.
1: Now, I know your first choice today was Alice Walker. (laughs) Guess how I know. (laughs) Known for the color purple, instead you got me. Known for the color of my hair. (laughs) So she was surprised. she was nervous about this speech. She didn't usually get nervous about speeches. She was nervous about this speech. And uh, and she invited Raisa Gorbachev to go along with her, not not for any uh, reason other than the Gorbachevs were scheduled to be in, in Washington and she was so relieved when it went well. And her staffers when she got back to the White House had done a knew how they they knew more than anyone how worried she was about it. And they had, did a big banner that said a job Wellesley done and we're standing out there. And, of course, they were going to stand out there with that banner, whether she did well or not, but she did do well, and it was just an enormous relief.
0: How old are your boys?
1: But they're both in their early 30s now.
0: Did they both go to college? They did. So you saw them in college and would understand somebody back in 1990 <laughs> protesting the speech. I guess I'm leading up to what do you think of— this has been going on for some time when people— protest the speaker they've got coming to uh, their college.
1: You know uh, it's more common now than it was then. Yeah. Uh, and and the fact that it, the protest had a, such a personal tone to it, I think uh, made it made it a controversy and the fact that Barbara Bush was by then quite beloved by Americans. Uh, you know by the time she was first lady, she became enormously popular, more popular than her husband.
0: More from that speech. This is for content. Um, This was at uh, June 1st, 1990. Just another 30 seconds here.
1: One of the reasons I made the most important decision of my life to marry George Bush is because he made me laugh. It's true, sometimes we laugh through our tears, but that shared laughter has been one of our strongest bonds. Find the joy in life. Because as Ferris Bueller said on his day off, <laughs> life moves pretty fast, and you don't stop and look around once in a while, you're gonna miss it.
0: Pick up in her life when uh, George Bush came into it, and uh, they decided to get married. Did he propose to her, or <laughs> you imply that there are a lot of things that George Bush did? that he never told her he was going to do, and she was expected to go along with
1: him. You know, I don't think he really proposed to her. Uh, he talked about this uh, just before uh, he died when he was in Bunkport for that last that last summer, that, that they had agreed to get married as they were walking up that driveway. But neither of them described it really as a proposal. It was more like they both knew that was going to happen.
0: So... The second part of that question is, how often did he decide he's going to <laughs> go to China or do the CIA or the Republican National Committee and didn't talk to her about it?
1: You know, he did that a lot when they were young, uh, when he was going to move to Texas. When he decided to move to Texas, that wasn't something he had a big, long discussion with her about. It was basically a uh, an accomplished fact when he presented it to her, and she was all for it. He took a series of jobs she thought he shouldn't take. She didn't think the CIA job— was such a smart idea uh, for someone who wanted to be president to take. He he took it anyway. Um, but, you know, that, that changed over time. And during his presidency, I think when he had big decisions to make, uh, he wanted her by his side. In fact, even on decisions of foreign policy, I interviewed Brian Mulroney, who was then the prime minister of Canada, who came, described to me a meeting, a secret meeting he had at the White House right after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, a meeting that he said had never been disclosed before. And it was to discuss with the American president what he was going to do about the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. And Barbara Bush was there, and he told his uh, ambassador afterwards that Barbara Bush was there because when George Bush was making the most consequential decisions of his presidency, he wanted to know what she thought.
0: Speaking of George Bush, you gave—he gave you the last interview he did in his life. What the last was,
1: interview with a with a journalist, yeah. um, as did she. Uh, so what a what a privilege that was.
0: What was the last interview with George Herbert Walker Bush like?
1: It was it was difficult. Um, you know, he was suffering from a form of Parkinson's. Uh, it made it difficult for him to speak more than a word or two at a time. Um, but we still had a we had a, so I had to pose questions that had short answers. Uh, but we had um, a good conversation. I said, "Do you remember the first time you saw Barbara Bush?" And he said that he did. And then he said, "She was so beautiful."
0: At the end of the book, um, you do uh, you, you discuss a lot about with her about dying. What was her position? As she was, was she 92 when she died? She was
1: 92, yeah. yeah.
0: What was her position on dying?
1: She was ready to die. Um, Why? She was mentally sharp, but she was physically in a lot of pain. And she wasn't afraid of dying. She was a person of great faith. Uh, she didn't think that dying was the end of things. Um, but she worried about him. Uh, she worried about her husband. And how would he do if she died first? And, in fact, both of them worried about that. Both of them worried about what the, how the other would fare if they died first. And I think it kept her alive for a while, the idea that she didn't want to leave him. But um, the time came when uh, her physical health was in such decline that uh, her life was going to end. And um, they had this final conversation in the den of their home, a place where I sat and interviewed her um, while doing the book in which they gave each other kind of permission to move on and george bush said to barbara bush i'm not going to worry about you and she said to him i'm not going to worry about you and then they had a drink
0: how many of the children did you talk to
1: i talked to george w bush jeb bush and neil bush so i talked to three of them
0: The other two say no.
1: The other two declined.
0: Do they give you a reason?
1: Uh, Marvin Bush sent me a very nice email saying that they were out of the interview business, which I respect because no one in this whole process had an obligation to talk to me. And I'm grateful to every single one who did.
0: You quote Neil. And where Mm -hmm. does Neil live now and what's he do?
1: He lives in Houston. Um, he lived basically across the street from his folks. He spent a lot of time with them. Um, he has a business. He's very involved in, in, in educational related businesses. Um, and he was—he's—he um, was a great insight. So he was a great interview about kind of the inner workings of his mother's mind. And he was the one person I interviewed who said that was especially with the benefit of hindsight that he understood. When she was very depressed, uh, and that he if, he wished he had seen the signs better, but anyway, uh, yes, I interviewed uh, Neil Bush.
0: Quote: This is Neil Bush. Dad has this amazing relationship with Bill Clinton. <laughs> Neil Bush told me, but Mom doesn't have the same affection <laughs> for Bill. She still remembers how Bill beat Dad. He apparently cheats in golf and did things that Mom doesn't particularly like. <laughs> But it shows that dad has this forgiving, amazing nature that is welcoming, and mom is much more black and white.
1: So how grateful must a biographer be to a son with that kind of insight, who's willing to say it? Because it is true that George H.W. George Bush and Bill Clinton, to everyone's surprise, became quite close after Bill Clinton left the White House. But Barbara Bush was much slower to warm to Bill Clinton for some of the reasons Neil said, although eventually, I think, she came to terms with Bill Clinton because she knew how much that relationship meant to George H.W. Bush.
0: In your opinion, how did George Bush become president? And I'm referring basically back to the lingering unhappiness between the Bushes and the Reagans over how George H.W. Bush got there. In other words ronald reagan according to nancy reagan didn't get enough credit
1: well the fact that ronald reagan chose george bush as his running mate in 1980 was a critical part of george bush becoming president but it is not the reason george bush became president it would be maybe it's necessary but not sufficient It boosted him, it made uh, the 1980 election where he had failed to win the nomination, it turned that around, it made it a a good thing, not a bad thing to be on the ticket. It uh, it enabled him to be elected in the wake of a president who had been enormously popular. But George Bush became president because he had spent a lifetime in preparation for becoming president. Have we ever had a president with the depth of experience that George Bush had? So I think it's fair to say that Ronald Reagan deserves some credit, but it's not due to Ronald Reagan that George Bush got elected.
0: But right there at that nexus between the Reagan presidency and the Bush presidency, something happened that soured Nancy Reagan's relationship with Mrs. Bush, namely the invitation to the White House to see the quarters nine days before inauguration. Uh,
1: You mean in 1981, in 1980?
0: When George Herbert Walker Bush became president. Oh, In other words, between when Nancy Reagan—I mean, uh, Uh, Mrs. Bush was not invited to tour the White House before uh, they took over, nine days before the inauguration.
1: So this became a big issue uh, between them, uh, because Nancy Reagan, I think, was not enthusiastic about leaving the White House. I think Nancy Reagan liked the White House, and she was slow to invite— Mrs. Bush to take the traditional tour so that she could take a close look at where her furniture was going to go and who was going to sleep in what bedroom and all the things you manage when you move into a new house, even if it's not the White House. Uh, and she, Barbara, Nancy Reagan was very slow to come through with this invitation, and that was enormously uh, annoying to Barbara Bush. Um, so that was a point of contention that recurs at key moments later including when the Bushes are moving out of the White House. So the Bushes have uh, been—George Bush has been defeated by Bill Clinton. Uh, They have to—they are evicted from the White House. Bush does not get the second term he wants. Um, They fly—they're flying back to Houston. Um, And Nancy Reagan does an interview on ABC in which she basically preemptively uh, says she did so to give a tour in good time to— Mrs. Bush four years earlier, uh, which of course at that moment, who would have cared about it? But that interview prompted the final and most combustible exchange between Barbara Bush and Nancy Reagan.
0: Yeah, but what there was a time when they had that telephone conversation.
1: So uh, two days later, uh, Barbara, so Nancy Reagan calls um, Barbara Bush, and Barbara Bush is pretty sure that this is to try to explain away this interview that she gave, uh, in which she also complained that the Bushes had not treated Ronald Reagan well, um, which the Bushes also would disagree with, uh, that they were very deferential to Ronald Reagan. But this was something that Nancy Reagan said in this interview. Um, and first, that first day, Barbara Bush ducked the call from the White House operator, the call coming from Nancy Reagan. And the second day, the operator said, well, it's Mrs. Reagan. Aren't you going to take the call? And so she took the call. And Nancy Reagan um, began to try to explain what she had meant. Uh, This is the kind of conversation that Barbara Bush had had many times with Nancy Reagan after public comments that seemed dismissive or disrespectful. And uh, Barbara Bush had finally had enough. They were out of the White House. She didn't need to bite her tongue anymore. She said uh, that, she t- that she took offense at it, uh, that she, reporters were at her door asking questions about it, which was not true. That was just designed to give Nancy Reagan a little heart, heart, heartburn. <laughs> and uh, And she said to Nancy Reagan, and don't you ever call me again. And she hung up. And here's what's interesting. In that first interview I did with Barbara Bush, she told me that story, which I found jaw-dropping. And when I read her diaries, it was precisely the way she had described it in this interview, which meant that this was a memory that was still, all these years later, perfectly clear to her.
0: Had she ever told that story before? No. Here's some video of an interview that Peter Slant here did with Barbara Bush back in 2013, uh, talks about the difference between being a first lady and second lady.
1: I did notice, though, the difference between being the vice president's wife and the president's wife is huge, because the vice president's wife can say anything. Nobody cares. The minute you say one thing as president's wife, you've made the news.
0: So that was a lesson I had to learn. You've been reporting Washington politics for how long?
1: A hundred years.
0: When did you start?
1: Approximately. Uh, 1980, 1980 was the first presidential campaign I covered.
0: The reason I ask is, why is there a difference in the way the media looks at a second lady versus a first lady?
1: Well, the first lady is the uh, the wife of the president, uh, And it's not that you pay no attention to the wife of the vice president, but in the same way you pay more attention to what the president says than the vice president, that would be true for the first and second lady.
0: How many presidents have you interviewed?
1: I've interviewed uh, nine presidents. I interviewed three of them after they left office and six of them in office.
0: And of all of those people that you've talked to, who was the hardest person to interview and who was the easiest? (laughs) Well, hmm. And why? Why?
1: Well, oh, that's a that's a hard question. I I don't know. I don't know who's the hardest. I can talk about who's the easiest of, of presidents. Yeah. Of of presidents, you know the th- thing with interviewing presidents and you know this how many presidents have you interviewed? I don't know. Beyond count. Is it 24? No, I mean, it's not as many as
0: yours. Yeah, thanks. No, you know, I don't—one of the things that I know, when you interview a president, everybody is watching, not you, but everything that they say, which is different from almost anybody else you interview. Yeah. And I wonder what that experience would be for for you.
1: So let me say the worst interview I ever did with a president was with Ronald Reagan. The first interview I did, because I went into the Oval Office and I was like, wow, I'm in the Oval Office. This is the president of the United States. I did a terrible interview. I didn't get one little bit of news. There was I came out of that like not even knowing what he had said. And uh, and I then had to write a story about the fact that I had done a terrible interview. I mean, I didn't say that in the story, but it was I'm sure it was clear to me. And I decided then that i would not repeat that experience (laughs) and that when you go in to interview presidents you need to have a plan you need to know what you're talking about and you need to have a plan for how you're going to get the president to say something he hasn't said a million times before because presidents get interviewed all the time they're very skilled they become president because they're skilled at keeping on their message uh so if you want to get something spontaneous or new or real you need to be at the top of your game so i took a lesson from that terrible interview i did with with Ronald Reagan. And the best presidential interview uh that I've done, I think, was with uh was with Bill Clinton, um and who was a easy to interview because he was he was willing to engage, he knew a lot about policy, he was you know, he was uh, a good person to interview. And one thing that made that interview good was it was um it was on a flight back from Chicago at the end of a long day. It really had, the interview wasn't supposed to be that late, but it got pushed back and pushed back. Um, so it was we were like landing at Andrews Air Force Base at 11 o'clock at night when this interview was taking place. And this is a hard time for me because I'm an early bird, but it's a great time for Bill Clinton because he's a night owl. And that was I did that interview with Mimi Hall, my colleague at uh, at USA Today, and that was that was a really good interview.
0: You talked to Bill Clinton for this book about Barbara Bush. Mm-hmm. Was he aware of what she thought of him? Yes, Bar- Barbara he, Bush. Yeah, yeah.
1: Barbara Bush made it pretty clear what she thought of you. Then uh, that would be true in her relationship with Bill Clinton as well with everybody else. What did he tell
0: her? Tell you his opinion of Barbara Bush was?
1: Well, he liked her a lot, and he knew it took a while to win her over. Uh, he un- he understood that. Uh, he had a he had a great um, uh, perspective on her and, and kind of what she had done for him. And one of the questions I asked almost everybody I interviewed was, if George Bush hadn't married Barbara Pierce, would he have become president? And Bill Clinton said no. Uh, and he said he wouldn't have become president if he hadn't married Hillary. And he talked about what it was that Barbara Bush did for George Bush as a, as a person and as a politician that was so crucial.
0: I know that you asked that question of a lot of grandkids mm-hmm. and a lot of people in the family. Who thought the whole idea of asking that question was ridiculous?
1: Well, I, I interviewed uh, Bucky Bush, who is George was George Bush's youngest brother. And, in fact, I interviewed him just a week before he died, um, before he fell and, and passed away. And I asked him this question, and he took offense uh, because I think he thought I was in some way denigrating his brother's achievement in becoming president, which was not my intention. Um, and he said he would have become president, no matter who he married. But most of the people I interviewed, including people very close to them, said that she was indispensable. This is the word that so many of them used, that she was indispensable to her husband.
0: What is your sense, after spending all this time thinking about Barbara Bush, would George Bush been elected without her?
1: So first let me say what they said. Uh, George Bush said, "Hmm, that's a good question. Yes, I think I would have."
0: <laughs> he said he thought he would be had, would yes, have been elected. That's right. Without her,
1: which surprised me because if you've been a husband for any period of time, you know the right answer to that question is, "No, I." She's been, but he he said yes. He thought he would. And when I asked her, she didn't hesitate for a minute. She said yes, absolutely. He was meant to be president, but I think they're both wrong. I think their partnership was indispensable.
0: Here's more from Peter Slans interview back in October 29, 2013. You write about this in your book. Uh, You've been referred to by some family members as the enforcer of the Bush family. What
1: do you think about that reputation? Well, I'm not sure I'm thrilled with Laura saying that. Uh, I deserve it because George is so... uh, you know, anything they do is all right. But someone has to be sure that the standards are kept. And he, he leads by example. I lead by denying some things. And I
0: am the enforcer.
1: There's no question about it.
0: People agree with that in the family?
1: Everybody, everybody agrees with that in the family. Good examples
0: Uh, uh, where she's the enforcer.
1: Oh, and well, on small things like pick up your towels, uh, but also on big things, you know, don't be lazy, get a job. Uh, She was uh, she she had standards and she enforced them. In fact, in 1990, I was at. um, the, the Bushes very generously would give this picnic at Kennedy Bunkport for the White House Press Corps that was up there to cover them in the summer. And I was uh, there with uh, my husband, Carl Lubstorff, and our two little boys in 1990. And she came up and, and demanded to know how I could defend working when my children were so young. And at first I thought she was kidding. And then it became clear that she was not kidding, that she actually thought this was, wanted to know uh, why I was doing this, and she made it clear she thought I'd made the wrong decision. And, you know, my boys were not helping by misbehaving and running around and behaving like they were raised by wolves during this whole exchange.
0: <laughs> but, but however, um, she changed her mind on this. She did. And what were the circumstances there, and how did you learn that?
1: Well, when with her, I think, with her granddaughters, when she had, of course, time passed, many people's view on uh, the role of women changed during the time of Barbara Bush's life. Not just her perspective, but a lot of people's. And with her granddaughter, she was as proud of her granddaughters working as her grandsons. And uh, she um, she talked a lot about how, uh, how her granddaughters who started the Global Health Corps, who worked on a feeding program for hungry people around the world, and who did all kinds of things, uh, co-hosted The Today Show. I mean, she would talk with great pride with them. And, in fact, Jenna Bush Hager, one of her granddaughters, told me that, although she has young children, that her grandmother really encouraged her to take on more responsibilities at The Today Show. Uh, So her views on this changed. But in 1990, her views on this were pretty clear.
0: What about what she told Jenna's twin sister, Barbara, about having a child?
1: So this was also very interesting. Barbara Bush the younger, her granddaughter, her namesake, um, told me that uh, there was a point, this is very much toward the end of Barbara Bush's life, that she hadn't gotten married, she didn't have children, um, she had broken up with her boyfriend, and that Barbara Bush, her grandmother, said, well, there are other ways to have children. You don't have to get married to have children. Uh, And basically giving her permission to, you know, um, have a Uh, have a child in the many other ways that people have children these days, and as a single mom. And isn't that extraordinary that Barbara Bush would think that would be an okay thing for her namesake to do? Now, since then, Barbara Bush, by the way, has has gotten married. But at the point, uh, this was right before she had the blind date that led to her marriage. So uh, this was, I think, quite a remarkable conversation.
0: Did you find anybody in your research that just didn't like Barbara Bush?
1: Well, I think uh, if I'd had the privilege of interviewing Nancy Reagan, she probably didn't like Barbara Bush. And there there are people who um, found her imperious. Uh, she could be pretty sharp. Um, she If you, she thought you were doing the wrong thing, she would let you know. Uh, there were definitely people on the Bush staff, in the President Bush's administration, the elder in President Bush's administration, the younger, who found her really intimidating. Um, but... Overwhelmingly, people liked her. And her sharpness was part of her authenticity. It was one of the things that made her so real.
0: Going back to the fact that you did get to read the diary, how long did it take you to finish it?
1: Well, it, uh, it took a long time, and, uh, you know, they would bring out these giant boxes from a cage at the—locked cage at the Bush Library. And it, they hadn't been even curated before, right? They were not—no the, archivist had gone through it. I would—pages would be stuck together and, and out of order and really quite extraordinary. And I just read them as, as fast as I could and with complete delight. You know, one of the nice things about reading her diary is that I read what she thought about me. So after an early interview, she said—she uh, wrote in her diary, Susan Page is writing a biography of me, period. Boring, Period. Not at all clear whether that meant Susan Page was boring or the idea of doing a biography of Barbara Bush was boring. Uh, And then after our last interview, she wrote, uh, Susan Page was here to interview me again. I like her. I hope she will be kind to me.
0: You uh, thank somebody named Will Lubsdorf (laughs) in the back of your book for helping you with this book. Who is he?
1: So Will Lubsdorf is the the younger of my misbehaving children at that picnic in Kennebunkport, who had gone back to graduate school as I was working on this book. And and he agreed to be my researcher at a point I was drowning in information. And he was a really great researcher, and I'm really grateful to him.
0: What did she think of the press?
1: She, uh, I think she didn't like some of the things the press wrote about her husband. um, And uh, she found the press pretty intrusive. But when Reza Gorbachev complained to her about the press, she defended the press as crucial, and I think she thought that true.
0: Got to run a quick clip of Reza Gorbachev at the Wellesley speech with her and explain the background on their relationship. The Soviet people know the value of peaceful life. We wish to have good relations with the American and other peoples. What was their relationship like, and what impact might it have had on international affairs?
1: So Reza Gorbachev and Nancy Reagan did not get along. Uh, we all know that. There was, there was clearly friction between them. And Barbara Bush thought this was not helpful to the United States, because Mikhail Gorbachev was a leader, very important uh, in these negotiations, in the effort to end the Cold War. And she wrote a letter to her brother, Scott, um, before the first time she met Reza Gorbachev as First Lady. And she said, I'm going to like her no matter what she does. That was basically, I'm going to make her my friend. She can say whatever she wants. She can be as difficult as she can be. And Reza Gorbachev could be difficult and didactic. And I'm going to make a friend of her. And she did. She cultivated Reza Gorbachev. She was deferential to her. Uh, Taking her to the Wellesley speech was part of that. She um, became friends with her. They developed—I said—I asked Barbara Bush, were they friends? And she said, friends is a big word meaning, I think, that they weren't friends in a traditional sense, but they became uh, friends in a way that was useful and helpful to the end of the Cold War. And you wonder sometimes whether that matters, right? Ronald Reagan reached big agreements with Mikhail Gorbachev, big, important, historic agreements, even though their wives didn't get along. But Brian Mulroney, the Canadian prime minister, told me that it did make a difference, that Mikhail Gorbachev really relied on his wife's advice, and it mattered that his wife felt good about the Bushes. And uh, uh, the chancellor of um, Germany, of West Germany, um, made the same point in conversations he had with Gorbachev in material that has since been declassified.
0: This is a off topic, but and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you tell a story about a time at the library um, in College Station... Where they're together there In the private quarters And John Sununu is there This is after the White House Didn't he get fired from the White House? This was weeks before
1: she died This was one of the last yeah, dinners they had But you know she, she, He did get pushed out of the White House
0: By his, she, by George H.W. Bush's Well there's a long son. story
1: about that um, But with, with Barbara Bush Thinking it was time for him to go She made that clear in her diaries But um, and Sununu was unhappy about it at the time, but that didn't make make a lifetime of enemies. And they were, uh, they still had a, a relationship. And you know, time heals all wounds. And um, Sununu, in fact, wrote a wrote a book uh, about the Bush presidency, defending the Bush presidency. And he was um, one of the people I interviewed for this book. So they had. They had uh, a difficult patch, but they made up.
0: You started talking about the press I'm going to start reading this, and you can fill in the blanks again. George Bush even moved to shield journalists from his wife's ire. New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd had accepted an invitation to attend a party celebrating the 2013 publication of All the Best, a collection of Bush's letters at the Washington home of C. Boyden Gray, his former White House counsel. What's the rest of it?
1: So... Um, Marine Dad accepted the invitation. New York and, Times columnist. The New York Times columnist who had written many things that made fun of Bush and his son. And she had been, she was friendly with the family, but she was tough in print. And she brought Jill Abramson, uh, who who uh, top Times editor, with her. And as they walk in the door, uh, Jill told me, Jill Abramson told me that it's quite clear that George Bush does not want Barbara Bush to see them. Uh, she would not. She, the, the, her strong impression was that George Bush thought it was not a smart idea for Marine Dad and Jill Abramson to be seen by Barbara Bush, and basically pulls them into the side room. They have a very friendly conversation, and then they are escorted out the door. Because she was she she was tough and she was caustic, and uh, uh, and he was not. He was uh, unfailingly courteous, and maybe that's why they were such a good pair because they were different in that way.
0: You have. Uh... <clears throat> been a longtime radio interviewer on the Diane Rehm Show here in Washington. You uh, have been at USA Today for how many years?
1: Since uh, 1995.
0: And you've appeared on a lot of television shows, especially during this period we're living in right now. What's your reaction to the, the uh, distrust, dislike, uh, strong reaction to the Mueller decision on the part of people who don't like what the media has done over the last two years?
1: I'm I'm so distressed by uh, the loss of faith in the mainstream news media by Americans. I think it's uh, I think it is troubling. I think it's damaging to our democracy. I think that um, uh, we we have to <clears throat> we have to do a better job of being fair and smart and making and transparent and making our readers and viewers know that we're being fair and even-handed and smart and transparent uh, to rebuild that trust. I think it's one of the biggest challenges our democracy faces right now.
0: But what caused this?
1: I don't think one thing caused it, um, and uh, I don't think one thing will fix it. Uh, You know, I think um, the proliferation of news outlets uh, has been uh, one thing that has changed the way people get news and who they trust. Uh, I think the rise of fake news is one factor, not the only one, but uh, one factor, kind of deliberate disinformation. Um, The increasing polarization of our politics um, has, I think, made half of America not trust liberal sources and half of America not trust conservative sources and news organizations like my own that try to be down the middle. um, I work for USA Today. uh, Have had a tough time in persuading people that um, we're not going to take a side. We're going to give you the information so that you can take a side. Uh, but And if Americans do not believe um, that there are news outlets they can trust and information, and we can agree on what happened and then disagree on what to do about it, uh, I think that is, a, that is a foundation of our democracy. We need to
0: make this work. You've appeared on Fox News. You've appeared on MSNBC. You're not mm-hmm. wed to one place. What do you think of the... Cable news networks taking a side, and they definitely have taken a side over the last yeah. two years.
1: You know, it's they've taken a side, and they've found an audience for that. Uh, that's been to, that obviously there are a lot of Americans who want to read or view news outlets that agree with what they think already, um, and and that's okay as long as we also have news available that doesn't take a side. Um, that's what I think is important. You're not going to eliminate. Advocacy news organizations, and we've had that through our whole history, but we need to have sources that are not partisan, that people believe uh, are telling them the truth.
0: The hardest thing of writing this book.
1: the The hardest thing was I wanted to do it fast. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to, the people I wanted to interview were elderly, many of them. I wanted to get to as many of them as I could. I felt it was like a timely book, so I wanted to write it fast. So so it was just the pressure of getting it done. That was the hardest thing.
0: Did you record your interviews?
1: Yes, all of them.
0: What are you going to do with it? I, I don't know. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> the name of the book is The Matriarch, Barbara Bush, and the Making of an American Dynasty. Our guest, USA Today's Susan Page. Thank you very much.
1: Hey, Thank you, Brian. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.